You're listening to an audio sermon of First Baptist Church of Arlington, Washington. Our mission is to know Jesus and make him known. Thank you for joining us. Here is today's message. We're going to look at one of the most detailed and historical accounts of a first century storm and shipwreck. In this account, we're going to see the forces of nature. We're going to see Satan and also the providence of God at work. One thing that this uh, chapter is going to show you and teach you, and that is you can walk with God. In fact, you can have a rich, deep walk with God, and still you are not exempt from storms and even shipwrecks. Seems to be part of the life here. Mary and I and the boys lived, as many of you know, in Seaside, Oregon for 10 years. And one of the things that the guys, the boys and I enjoyed doing was going out to the South Jetty. And uh, we would go out there in the uh, spring and summer and fall time. And uh, we loved to take our surf poles and go out there and catch the salmon if they happened to be running. Now, you have to understand, you go to the South Jetty. And on the north side of the jetty, there's beach that you can walk about a quarter of a mile before you hit the Columbia River, after which, of course, you have to climb up on the rocks, and then you have to walk another about a quarter mile uh, further out on those rocks. Now, on the uh, south side, uh, that's the ocean immediately. But one of the things that we would do, we would get up in the tower, we climb up in the tower just to see what the waves were doing. And... Uh, there were times that we knew that it was rather calm out there and it was okay to go ahead and walk that beach walk to the Columbia River and then climb up on the rocks and go all, all the way out to where we were going to fish. There were other times where it was rather moderate. You could see that the waves were crashing against on the ocean side against the rocks and uh, coming somewhat high on the rocks, but you could still, okay, we can get out there and we can, uh, we can fish. The problem is, you have your location on top of the rocks and you've got a surf pole, or three of them in this case, or four, and you're, you, you have a, a, a three-ounce pyramid weight and you've got your hook and your herring and you cast that thing out there. And if you happen to get a salmon on, you've got to go down to the lower rocks in order to either gaff or net that salmon. That's where the problem comes in because you might get wet and you certainly don't want to get blown off those rocks. And then there were other times that uh, we would go out there and climb the tower. I mean, it was a raging sea, and uh, the waves were crashing clear over the top of the rocks, and you knew that was not a time to be out there at all. I also remember a time I went with a fellow out in the mouth of the Columbia River. Now, Buoy 10 is there at the mouth of the Columbia River, and whenever the King or the Chinook salmon are running, John, you want to be there. Now, some of you saw recently on the news that two boats were out there among a lot of other boats, and they hit each other, and they sunk. Fortunately, everybody was rescued. In this particular time, it was not that the Kings were running, but this guy and I were out there. I was in his boat, and suddenly, I can't believe it, we just got overcome with a thick fog. You couldn't see anything. You couldn't see uh, the shoreline. You could not see other boats out there. And the problem is that's a time when you don't want to be in the channel where those ships come in. You just don't want to be there. Then here we were, we could like pea soup. We couldn't see anything. And uh, suddenly we hear this deep, loud uh, horn toward us. We know it's coming. We don't know where. We just know it's out there somewhere. And man, we have got to get out of there whatever way. Just don't go toward it, you know. And I, you're scared to death at that time. 
Well, fortunately, obviously, we made it, but uh, that was a very frightening time being out there with the fog. Well, this morning, we're going to be looking at uh, an example of a shipwreck and a terrible, terrible storm. By the way, I could imagine, well, some of you have watched probably on television where they have the the most dangerous uh, 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 occupations, and one is crabbing in the Bering Sea. And you might have seen that that's a job I didn't sign up for. That is one frightening thing when those waves are crashing, that storm up there, and they're out there trying to get those Alaskan king crabs for you. Well, after this event that uh, Dr. Luke and Paul were in, I could imagine they would have been on every talk show around and probably would have been given the uh, movie rights as well from the producers uh, if they would have been around. This morning, though, we're going to find ourselves on a ship in such a storm. We're going to be looking at Acts 27, and W.H. Griffith Thomas has this to say about Luke's account of this particular storm and shipwreck. He writes, The story of the voyage is unusually detailed and graphic, testifying to Luke's opinion of its importance in the Apostles' career. It is the most valuable document that we of today possess concerning ancient seamanship, and it is also a striking illustration of the blend of natural and supernatural, divine providence and human struggle that is so characteristic of life. And isn't that true? Isn't that true? If such an experience were to take place today, as I said, I imagine Dr. Luke and the Apostle would uh, really have much to share uh, with uh, the media. Back in Acts 23.11, The Lord had appeared to Paul and told him that he had to witness to his cause in Rome as he had done in Jerusalem. Now, after six trials and several months later, Paul finds himself on board a large sailing vessel heading toward Rome. You may remember that Festus, the governor of Judea, tried to get Paul to agree to go back to Jerusalem and stand trial there. But he understood, he realized, if I do that, they're going to assassinate me. So he used his citizenship as a Roman citizen, and he appealed to Caesar. That was the only recourse he saw left to him. And that meant that Festus would have to send him to Rome for this trial. But Festus had a problem. He had also put in writing what Paul's crime was against the empire. And he couldn't figure that problem out. I mean, there wasn't any uh, crime that Paul had committed. But fortunately, he had a visitor show up. And that was Herod, King, King Herod Agrippa II. And he paid Festus a visit. And the governor thought, well, maybe Herod, being Jewish, could help him out. And so he asked Paul to share again before him and others that Festus had gathered together. And uh, maybe Herod could figure out what he was to write to send to Caesar, saying that Paul was guilty of. Well, Herod ended up saying, the guy's innocent. If he wouldn't appeal before Caesar, we could let him go. But now we have to take him and let him go to uh, send him on his way to Caesar. And now we have Dr. Luke's account here in Acts 27. And I've entitled it, Weathering the Storms of Life. So if you have your outline, you may want to fill that in. If you're home, you can use some paper and pen and write it down. We're going to begin with what I call a blow-by-blow account of the voyage. A blow, that's kind of a pun, okay, but the blow-by-account 
of the voyage. Because this is a narrative, I'm going to give you a verse-by-verse rundown of Luke's account, and then we'll go back and extract some principles that we can apply to our daily living. So let's begin with verse 1. Acts 27, verse 1. When it was decided that we would sail for Italy, they proceeded to deliver Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. The first thing that you should notice about verse 1 is that pronoun, we. The last time it appeared in Luke's writing, it's back in chapter 21, verse 1. So, Dr. Luke, once again, is now with Paul. It's interesting that back in chapter 21, Paul and Luke found themselves on a ship in the Mediterranean Sea as well, back there. Julius was a centurion, meaning that he had 100 soldiers under his charge, and being of the Augustan cohort, he must have also been especially assigned to the emperor. So he's sort of a special guy here. So Paul, Paul is the lowest of the low when it comes to who all is aboard this ship. He, however, was not the only prisoner. We're told that there were others as well as we get into our text. With that, go to verse 2. And embarking on an Adramatian ship, which was about to sail to the regions along the coast of Asia, we put out to sea accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica. This evidently, or they evidently sailed from Caesarea, having found this ship from Adramatium, located just above Ephesus. These ships, by the way, were coastal vessels and pretty much hugged the coastline. They really didn't venture way out into the ocean very far. We'd call them port hoppers is what they really were. You have to realize now there were no passenger ships back there. There were just two types, warships and cargo ships. That's all they had. But we learn that Aristarchus, one of Paul's converts from Thessalonica, also joined them on this voyage from verse 2. Now verse 3. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul with consideration and allowed him to go to his friends and receive care. So this is now the second day they put into this port in Sidon. That's about 70 miles north by sea. Julius, the centurion, he allows Paul to leave the ship and visit with some of the believers who lived in that city. I would imagine now a soldier must have also accompanied them. He didn't just let them go, I would think. But uh, Luke and Aristarchus go with him. And this really tells us something about Paul's character. When you consider that a Roman centurion would extend such a privilege to a prisoner. I can't wonder that maybe Julius was in that Uh, arena, that assembly, when uh, Festus and Herod Agrippa II uh, had him give his testimony. I would imagine he was there. Those words, receive care, are medical words used by Dr. Luke, and it would imply that Paul might have been sick. Perhaps he'd been tested positive for COVID. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Verses 4 through 6. From there we put out to sea and sailed into the shelter of Cyprus because the winds were contrary. When we had sailed through the sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy, and he put us aboard it. 
So they leave Sidon, they sail around the north side of Cyprus and headed toward Myra, a port on the south part of Asia Minor. And that's a sailing distance somewhere around 350 miles, so that's quite a trip, 350 miles by sea. It was here that Julius found this Alexandrian cargo ship loaded with wheat for Rome, so he and his party boarded it. Now later in verse 37, Luke tells us there were a total of 276 people aboard that ship. When this place is completely full, you might have about 276 people. So you have a general idea how many people were aboard this ship. Well, as I said, you kind of need a Bible map to really take in the flavor of this journey. Now verses 7 and 8. And with difficulty, with difficulty sailing past it, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which, uh, let me go back to verse 7. When we had sailed slowly for a good many days, and with difficulty had arrived off Snidus, since the wind did not permit us to go further, we sailed into the shelter of Crete off Salmon. And with difficulty sailing past it, we came to a place called Fair Haven, near which was the city of Lycia. So from Mycia, they attempted to make their way to Snidus, staying fairly close to the coastline now. But Luke tells us they sailed slowly for a good many days. And with difficulty, they finally arrived off Snidus. From Snidus, the winds were too strong to continue due west, so they turned and went south down around the eastern side of the island of Crete and landed in the port of Fair Havens. Now verses 9 through 13. When considerable time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous, since even the fast was already over, Paul began to admonish them. And he said to them, Men, I perceive that the voyage will certainly be with damage and great loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion was more persuaded by the pilot and the captain of the ship than by what he was being said by Paul. Because the harbor was not suitable for wintering, the majority reached the decision to put out to sea from there. If somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. When the moderate south wind came up, supposing that they had attained their purpose, they weighed anchor and began sailing along Crete, close inshore. We're not told how long they stayed waiting in Fair Havens, but Luke describes it as a considerable time. Another concern is noted here, and that is that the fast, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, had already passed. In AD 59, Yom Kippur fell on October 5th, about a month from now. From November 11th to the end of March, nobody crossed the Mediterranean Sea. Nobody. The winds were extremely strong and the sea extremely rough. It was a gamble to sail in the open sea from September 14th through November 11th, a very dangerous time on the Mediterranean. Now, Paul had already been on a lot of ships. He had already suffered three different shipwrecks. He really wasn't interested in going through a fourth one, you can imagine. But the real reason, this, and by the way, it's understandable that the centurion would not, I'm sorry, would more readily listen to the pilot or captain of the ship than he would to a prisoner. That's understandable. But the real reason for leaving was that it was a terrible harbor to have to winter in, and the majority ruled and the decision was made. Sounds like a lot of churches. <laughs> Those words in verse 12, if someone 
somehow they could reach Phoenix and spend the winter there. I think uh, they became the life verse of folks here like uh, uh, Jeff and Patty and Bruce and Don. You know, they leave and head for Phoenix. <laughs> okay. By the way, Phoenix was only, listen, it was only 40 miles west by northwest of Fair Havens. Not that far to sail. And notice how convenient that a moderate south wind came up to help confirm their decision. So off they sailed. Now, look, and by the way, somewhere, I, I want you to get this, somewhere in this account, you need to find yourself out there with Paul and Dr. Luke and Aristarchus and the other 273 folk aboard that ship. I want you to find yourself on this ship right in the middle of this terrific storm with them. Verses 14 through 17, but before very long, there rushed down from the land a violent wind called Uroquillo, and when the ship was caught in it and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and let ourselves be driven along. Running under the shelter of a small island called Clotta, we were scarcely able to get the ship's boat, that'd be the skiff, under control. After they had hoisted it up, they used supporting cables in undergirding the ship, and fearing that they might run aground on the shallows of Sirtis, they let down the sea anchor, and in this way let themselves be driven along. We need to read about the horrific storm at sea and the struggle that everyone aboard this ship just survived. It is a horrific storm. They're out there in this fierce gale, with huge waves crashing over the whole ship. And all that they can do is let the storm and wind drive them. We're told that they're, they're, they're towing a good-sized skiff that they nearly lost. And this storm is so bad that they have to hang on for dear life. I mean, this thing is going all over the place and up and down. And you got 274 people on there and they're hanging on for dear life. And all of that, they got to get up to the bow of this ship and get these ropes and throw it over the bow of the ship and somehow work it all the way down while they stay aboard the ship and cinch it together hoping that the ship will hold together. This is an unbelievably fierce storm that Dr. Luke is describing for you and me. So they're hanging on for dear life, attempting to get those support cables under the ship in order to support it and keep it from being shattered or broken apart. And that's how powerful the waves are that are crashing against this ship. As I said, if you're on deck, and some of you have been out in the ocean when it's been fairly rough, and you know you hang on. You hang on for dear life. They also know if the storm drives them into the shallows of Sirtis, its reef will tear the ship apart, so they throw out their anchors in the hopes of keeping them off the reef. And listen, even the toughest soldiers trained and ready to enter combat were filled with fear. They're absolutely feared, 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 filled with fear for their lives in that wild ocean being tossed around like a cork. I would say, I would say God might have been getting a few people's attention. Huh. Verses 18 through 20. The next day as we were being violently storm-tossed, they began to jettison the cargo. That's 24 hours later. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. 
since neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small storm was assailing us, from then on all hope of our being saved was gradually abandoned. What a storm. Surely, surely this storm will let up. At least a little. After all, God's man is aboard that ship along with some other redeemed folks. Surely he will cause it to let up a little. But that's just not the case. Folks, it gets a whole lot worse. We find that God puts Paul in charge of the ship. With the angry raging storm nearly destroying the ship and every life aboard, God got the attention of all 275 of them. He already had Paul's attention, we know that. Having gotten everybody's attention, Paul now, or God now puts Paul in charge. First, Paul gently admonishes them. Notice verse 21. When they had gone a long time without food, then Paul stood up in their midst and said, Men, you ought to have followed my advice and not to have set sail from Crete and incurred this damage and loss. He wasn't being neener or neater. I told you so, you crazy people. He was very gracious, very gentle, but very straightforward as well. And then, you see, the ship's officers and sailors and centurion, they understood that Paul did know what he was talking about. And that's a valuable thing here. That God wants him to know this man knows what he's talking about. And second, God or Paul gives everybody aboard some encouragement and assurance. Look at verses 22 through 26. Yet now I urge you to keep up your courage for there will be no loss of life among you, but only the ship. For this very night an angel of the God uh, to whom I belong and whom I serve stood before me, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted you all those who are sailing with you. Therefore keep up your courage, men, for I believe God that it will turn out exactly as I have been told, but we must run aground on a certain island. And so... We find that he gives everybody a little bit of encouragement and assurance. And now third, God uses Paul to stop a desertion so it will be clear to everyone that this miraculous deliverance of all those on board was a result of Paul's God, the one true God. I want you to see how God works here, using Paul. Verses 27 through 32. But when the 14th night came, can you imagine that they had been out there 14 days a night, no stars, no sun, no moon, just a horrific storm trying to hang on for dear life. Boy, does God know how to get people's attention. <laughs> but when the 14th night came, as we were being driven around uh, in the, about in the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors began to surmise that they were approaching some land. Remember, it's pitch black out there. They took soundings and found it to be 20 fathoms. fathoms. A little farther on, they took another sounding, found it to be 15 fathoms. Fearing that we might run aground somewhere on the rocks, they cast four anchors from the stern and wished for daybreak. But as the sailors were trying to escape from the ship and had let down the ship's boat, remember they had saved that boat earlier, that little skiff into the sea, on the pretense of intending to lay out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and to the soldiers, Unless these men remain in the ship, you yourselves cannot be saved. 
Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it fall away. It's amazing that they now are listening to Paul, aren't they? They are willing to cut that little boat away and let it be blown away by the wind and by the waves as well. So thirdly, God uses Paul to stop a desertion so it will be clear to everyone that this miraculous deliverance of all those on board was a result of Paul's God, the one true God. And now fourth, just as Paul prophesied the ship was broken up and everyone got safely ashore, God causing the centurion to overrule the soldiers who wanted to kill all the prisoners. Verses 33 to 44. Until the day was about to dawn, Paul was encouraging them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have been constantly watching and going without eating, having taken nothing. Therefore I encourage you to take some food, for this is for your preservation, for not a hair from the head of any of you will perish. Having said this, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of all, and he broke it and began to eat. All of them were encouraged, and they themselves also took food. All of us in the ship were 276 persons. When they had eaten enough, they began to lighten the ship by throwing out the wheat into the sea. When day came, they could not recognize the land, but they did observe a bay with a beach, and they resolved to drive the ship onto it if they could. And casting off the anchors, they left them all in the sea, while at the same time they were loosening the ropes of the rudders and hoisting the foresail to the wind, they were heading for the beach. But striking a reef where two seas met, they ran the vessel aground, and the prow stuck fast and remained immovable, but the stern began to be broken up by the force of the waves. You have to understand, often in seaside there'd be a terrible storm out there. You go out the next day and those waves are still fierce. They are very large, very strong. And that's the case here. They weren't small waves. They're still crashing and they bust this uh, ship apart. The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners so that none of them would swim away and escape. But the centurion, wanting to bring Paul safely through, kept them from their intention and commanded that those who could swim should jump overboard first and get to land. And the rest should follow some on planks and others on various things from the ship. And so it happened that they all were brought safely to land. So here, Paul, as he just prophesied, the ship was broken up and everyone got safely to shore, God causing the centurion to overrule the soldiers who wanted to kill all of the prisoners. So, with that historical background, the question, why there are shipwrecks when we belong to God? Good question, right? Why there are shipwrecks when we belong to God? I came up with at least five reasons from Scripture. I imagine there are more. First one, they come because of satanic activity. They come because of satanic activity. I think of Job. You know the account of Job, how he lost everything. He and his wife lost their ten children. Job lost his health. But Job was not privy to the conversation between God and Satan. It went like this. Satan had to appear before God, you recall. And he said, have you considered my my servant Job that there's none like him? And Satan says, I'll tell you why he worships you, God. 
He worships you because of what he gets out of you. Not because you're worthy of worship, but rather, you know, like the health, wealth, and prosperity thing. And you can understand the damage that that has done first to the character of God because God is worthy to be worshipped. But secondly is people say, I'm going to get into that. I want the health. I want the wealth. I want the prosperity. I want, I want the good life. And suddenly shipwrecks come. And where's God in that? God says, no. People worship me because I'm worthy to be worshipped. So one reason that storms and shipwrecks come into a believer's life is because of satanic activity. I think about Peter. Jesus says to him, Simon, Simon, when God calls your name twice, you're in trouble. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Satanic activity here. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And I think of Paul. We see Satan's activity repeatedly trying to destroy this great apostle of the faith. I mean, this is the fourth shipwreck he's been in. And then he talks about a messenger of Satan was given to buffet him. In 2 Corinthians 11 and 12, he gives his testimony there. But there's a second reason. Not only does uh, because Satan's uh, activity do we find ourselves in storms and shipwrecks, but secondly, God desires to speak to others. We see that in our text here. God does at time take us, you and me, through storms for the sake of others. Again, I think about Paul, what he shares with us in 2 Corinthians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which we ourselves are comforted by God. For he says, just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. You know, we love David. I, I just love David and I love all those psalms. As you know, he wrote about half of them. And boy, what storms God put him through and some he put himself through as well. And the shipwrecks as well. But oh, the preciousness of God comforting him and encouraging him and delivering him. And he in turn ministers to others as a result of that, including you and me today. And here we have this storm in Acts 27. It's a classic example of God's desire to speak to others. (laughs) I'll tell you what, being out there for 14 days and 14 nights with nothing but being storm-tossed and thinking it's the end of the physical life for you, God really gets to speak to your heart, doesn't he? But there's a third reason, and that is God desires to strengthen and build godly character. God desires to strengthen and build godly character. I think of James, the half-brother of Jesus, who writes, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, storms, Shipwrecks. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Again, I think of Paul's thorn in the flesh. That he prayed three times and pleaded, please God remove this. Have you ever done that? Sure you have. Sure I have. Please take this out of my life. 
whatever it might be. And he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For power is perfected in weakness. May I suggest that many of us are just way too strong physically. God says, I have to make you weak that my power might be manifested in and through your life. And Paul says, most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses. Really? With insults? Oh, yeah? Distresses? persecutions, difficulties for Christ's sake. Not that I brought them upon myself, but for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And God allows storms and even shipwrecks to strengthen and build. You're my godly character. By the way, we just don't do this on our own. I've lived long enough to know that. Old flesh gets in the way and it's not about, oh, it'll give up here and there, you know, but it's not going to give up like the Lord wants it. So God says, I can take care of that for you. Let's go out to sea on my my ship. (laughs) But a fourth reason why there are shipwrecks when we belong to God. Number four, God desires to reveal himself and display his glory. That's really where he wants to get all of us. Where it's not your self-glory, not my self-glory, but it's His glory. God desires to reveal Himself and display His glory. Remember that fellow that was born blind back there in John 9? I mean, he came as a baby into the world never seeing anything. He grew into his childhood and he went into his teenage years and he never saw anything at all. He went into early manhood and still never saw anything at all. And so here come Jesus and his disciples passing by and they want to know uh, who sinned, his father or his children, I'm sorry, his parents or him. And the Lord said, neither. But it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him for God's glory. The Lord allowed, he allowed Martha and Mary to go through the agony of losing their brother Lazarus when he could have showed up and healed him. They knew that. But he allowed him to die. Put him aboard ship. Let the storm hit. Let the ship be battered to pieces. He died. And just before Jesus raised him back to life, he said to Martha, Did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? That's why God allows storms and shipwrecks in your and my life. The people might see God in us and God working in and through us I just wonder how many of those storms God allows and causes you and me to go through come our way because God desires to reveal himself and display his glory I think that was the major reason for this storm and shipwreck that he allowed in Paul and Dr. Luke and those other 274 folks lives I think that perhaps I mentioned before Julius probably heard Paul's defense there in that great assembly before Herod Agrippa and Festus. I think he probably heard it. But now, this centurion is going to see it. Boy, God's going to open his eyes as he sees what God does through Paul and the others there. Fifth reason why God allows storms and shipwrecks in people's lives, God desires to correct our behavior. 
I know some of these overlap, but God desires to correct our behavior. And this all begins with leading one to saving faith. I wonder how many of you, and how many of you hearing my voice even online, came to saving faith because of a storm and maybe a shipwreck in your life. And God used that to get your attention and reveal himself to you. And you saw you were the sinner that the Bible says you are. And you could not save yourself. And you threw yourself upon the mercy of God and said, Oh, Jesus Christ, I do want to live differently. I do want my sins all forgiven. I do want you to come into my heart and life, and I want, I want you to save me. I'm going to trust you and you alone to save me. And multitudes of people have come to saving faith because God desired to correct their behavior, and he used a storm and a shipwreck to do it. But it isn't just for the unbeliever to come to saving faith. It's also for you and me who are already saved. Think about that. Good old Jonah on another ship in the Mediterranean Sea and on another storm. What was he doing? He was disobedient, running from God, and God had to get his attention, didn't he? And he certainly did. Makes me wonder... He said in the last days there would be a falling away. And I wonder how many Christians, in quotes, started out that way, going to church, you know, kind of living the right kind of life and all that, but suddenly have drifted away. Just drifting as Hebrews 2 warns about, or Hebrews 1 warns about, chapter 2 warns about. Drifting further and further away. And God says, you know what? I want your attention. I'm going to put you aboard a ship. And you're going to be in a gale and a storm like you've never been before. And I might even decide to destroy the ship you're on. Because I'm going to get your attention and get you back into fellowship with me. You know something? That is a blessing from God. Would you believe that? Accept that? That can be a blessing from God that he does it. You know, my dad was in that situation. He got saved at 16, sold his wild oats, married uh, uh, my mother, who at that time was unsaved, and uh, through an accident down in Northern California. And I mean, he had uh, casts all over the place. And we came back up to Sweet Home, Oregon, and he got right with God. And my mom got saved, and I got saved. My brothers and sister got saved. You see, God knows how to put you in a, in a, on a ship and cause a storm and destroy your ship to bring you back home to him. And I think about this, dear people, because he said, when you see these things begin to take place, Straighten up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. If there's any people that ought to understand the times we're living in, it's God's people. Amen? Amen. If there's any time that we should be drawing closer to Him and letting Him do the correction in our life so that our behavior is honoring, it's right now. Because soon we might find ourselves home with Him. So I encourage you, why there are shipwrecks when you belong to God? Peter gives this fifth reason uh, to mention about the correction of behavior. Let me read it for you. He writes, He who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For the time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles, 
having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Isn't that a picture of today's culture? He says, look, that time's gone by. It's time to stop living that way and start living for God. In other words, God desires to correct our behavior. And so why are there shipwrecks when we belong to God? First of all, they come because of satanic activity. Secondly, God desires to speak to others through them, through us. God desires to strengthen and build godly character. Fourth, God desires to reveal himself and display his glory. And fifth, God desires to correct our behavior. But there's another principle from this storm and the shipwreck that I want us to look at. And that is this. When God brings a storm your way, he provides others to encourage you. We need that. When God brings a storm your way, he provides others to encourage you. In verses 1 and 2, it tells us that Luke and Aristarchus chose to join Paul on this journey to Rome. It is most unusual that a prisoner would be allowed to have friends accompany him. It is thought that Luke and Aristarchus chose to go along as Paul's slaves, or Festus, knowing that Paul was innocent, allowed their company, hoping to keep in Paul's good favor since he would be standing before the emperor, Nero. Whatever the reason, this is an added blessing of encouragement from God to Paul. He does that for you and me as well. When God brings a storm your way, he provides others to encourage us. Have you thought about the depth of Paul's meaning in 1 Corinthians 12? He writes, if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. That's true. And we need to participate there. When one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. You see, brotherly love is not a question of feeling. It's a question of sacrifice. And these two men made that sacrifice for Paul. And it's a special gift from God. You know the writer of Hebrews exhorts you and me who are redeemed and belong to God and belong to the church, the body of Christ. He says, encourage one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And dear ones, that's what we're seeing. Encourage each other then to walk close with the Lord, to be strengthened in his word and strengthen one another. Recently, I went to visit Francis Scarfoni. She told me, I pray every single day for you and Mary and for Pastor Hans and Julia and Pastor Stephen and Veronica. That encourages our hearts. That's what it means to encourage one another. We need that. Oh, how we need that. And you may have to go before the Lord and diligently seek his face, asking him to bring another brother or sister into your life who can and will encourage you in the storm you're going through. And maybe your ship is already battered to pieces. I don't know. I know that, he, uh, sorry, I know that James 5 says, call for the elders. Call for the elders and let them hold you up and strengthen you. That's what we're supposed to do. So when God brings a storm your way, he provides others to encourage you. But there's another principle. God comes in man's absolute helplessness and announces who he is. I like that. God comes in man's absolute helplessness and announces who he is. So many of the Psalms bear that out. They had lost all control of the ship. 
They were terribly storm-tossed, waves crashing over the top of the ship. Their cargo was gone as a last resort. They had no lights to see with, no navigation system to rely upon, no compass, no GPS, no stars, no moon, and during the day, no sun. They had none of that. They were absolutely desperate for help. And as verse 20 says, all hope of our being saved was gradually abandoned. And dear ones, that included Paul and Luke and Aristarchus. I think of Old Testament examples of God's bringing on absolute helplessness and then he announces who he is. (laughs) Look at uh, Abraham and Sarah. Come on, God, it didn't work out. I'm 100 and she's 90. What are you talking about? God says, now I'm going to reveal myself. I think of Jonah. I'm sorry, not Jonah, but Joseph. And good night, here he had these dreams. And I'm sure he gave up on those dreams a long time ago. When his brothers got a hold of him, they're going to kill him. And they throw him in the pit instead. And then God orchestrates that the, uh, the uh, Ishmaelites come by. And they say, hey, we can get some money on him. They sell him. And things are going somewhat fairly a little bit better for Joseph down there in Egypt. And then suddenly Potiphar's wife turns on him. He finds himself in a dungeon there. I mean, absolutely helpless. And then he tells the baker and the... Uh, uh, the uh, uh, what's the word I want? The uh, wine, the guy made the cup, you know, the cup, uh, uh, king's cup there. Uh, he tells him their dreams. He said, but remember me now when you go before Pharaoh. And guess what? Two more years go by. But in man's absolute helplessness, God announces who he is. He did that for Moses. Remember, God said, step aside. I'm going to just destroy all of them. And I'll start with you and make you a great nation. He says, oh God, you can't do that. The other nations would say, you were not strong enough to deliver us and so forth. And so as a result of that, uh, he sees God do that mighty work in the people of Israel back then. I think of Esther. Haman, I mean, it was set. Haman was going to kill off all the Jews. And God steps in in that time of helplessness and delivers them. And it's all over the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. God comes in man's absolute helplessness and announces who he is. I think about Paul. You know, God does confirm his man or woman who he's going to use. Look at verse 21 again. In verse 21, when they had gone a long way without food, then Paul stood up in the midst and said, Men, you ought to have followed my advice and not to have set sail for Crete and incurred this damage and loss. So now God establishes Paul's credibility here, doesn't he? And then verses 22 through 26, Paul declares the presence of God to those on board. I got to at least read part of that. Verse 22, yet now I urge you to keep up your courage for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night, the angel of God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood before me saying, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar and behold, God has granted you all those who are sailing with you. I mean, he is revealing the one true God to these 274 people aboard this ship. This is really amazing when you consider the odds of things happening exactly as Paul set them forth. They're going to lose the cargo, the ship. They're going to run aground on a certain island. And there's going to be no loss of life. All 276 people aboard are going to be saved. 
That's an incredible thing. And God really does confirm you when you walk in his will. And like Paul can say, I believe God that it will turn out exactly as I have been told. (laughs) Oh, Paul. He starts as a prisoner on this ship. He is the lowest of low on the ship. But he ends up by commanding everybody, including the captain, sailing master, and the Roman centurion. By the time this thing's over, he is absolutely running everything. It reminds me of James, the half-brother of Jesus' words, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. But there's one more principle I would extract from this storm and shipwreck that I want you to get with me. One more. It's this. The world little knows how much they owe those who belong to God. The world little knows how much they owe those who belong to God. Look at verses 23 and 24. For this very night an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood before me, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar and behold, listen to this, behold, God has granted you all those who are sailing with you. Reminds me of Abraham. You're a righteous God. You can't destroy all those people of Sodom and Gomorrah. If there are 50, will you not spare the city? Yes, I will. Oh God, please bear with me. If there are 40, I'll spare them for 40. 30, 20. And finally says, just one more time. If there are even 10 Will you spare the city? God said, I'll do it for ten. It's sad that there were not ten people that were righteous there in Sodom and Gomorrah. Amazing. Moses has said, intercedes for these rebellious Israelites when God told him to stand aside and God spares them. Number 14. I think of those going through storms and shipwrecks at your workplace. They're going through them, folks. School. Whenever that starts up again, your family, neighborhood. I believe today the church, meaning all those who are genuinely saved, is used by God the Holy Spirit to restrain evil in this world. When we are taken out of here, when the great rapture occurs, the world little knows just how dark and wicked and evil and vile it's going to become here upon the earth. Satan will finally have his hour. Listen to God's word in Romans 9, 22 through 24. What if God, what if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and make his power known, meaning he's willing to do it, folks, and he's going to do it, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for the destruction. Why would he do that? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he also called, not from among the Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles. You know, the United States and Christians living righteous lives right now, the world little knows how much they owe us. How God has spared the nation 
because of righteous people. They little know how much they owe those who belong to God. I conclude with this story out of the Bible. Jesus had just finished feeding 5,000 men plus women and children. He sent the disciples away to cross the Sea of Galilee. He stayed to pray. (laughs) Night falls upon them, and he, it says, Mark, who was discipled by Peter, who was in that boat, he tells us Jesus saw them out in the middle of Galilee in a storm-tossed boat trying to get to shore. Galilee is what? The Sea of Galilee, three miles wide and long. He sees them out there. It's interesting to me that he sent them out there. He sees them, and then he comes walking on the storm-tossed sea and plans to pass by them. (laughs) Why did he do that? Because he wanted them to call out to him, and they did. And of course, he entered the boat. It says a storm, or rather, they instantly found themselves at the shoreline. Amazing. God does put us out there in storms. And dear ones, as you probably can testify, at least some of you can, some of you will be able to, he will also let your ship be battered to pieces. But he's still there to meet your every need and to get you safely home. He will get you safely home. I think about our concluding song. Most of you know the story. Horatio Spafford and his wife Anna lost their four daughters in a shipwreck at sea. I think about that loss in the words of this song, It Is Well With My Soul. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet me because he does bring storms, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded, listen, he's regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. And then this one. Oh, this one. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross. Oh, dear ones, I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. And let me say that if you're here this morning and you're still bearing your sin, oh, that you would come to the Savior and let Him take that sin away and bear it. Put your faith in Him and let Him save you and He will see you safely home. And Lord, haste the day, and boy, is that not what we're living right now? Haste the day when faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. Heavenly Father, from this text I think we see that a great godly man like Paul, Dr. Luke and Aristarchus, they're not guaranteed that they're not going to face storms in life. They're not guaranteed that their ship will even hold together. And neither are we. 
Father, that seems to be a fact of life for the believer. But how I pray that through this we will find great faith in resting and trusting in you. And Lord, that we will put our faith in you completely and believe that you will see us safely through and safely home. And Father, we do pray for anyone who might be here that cannot say, well, I know, I know I'm in go- I know storms, I understand that. I've seen my ship battered to pieces before, I understand that as well, but I'm not safe in the Lord. I've not put my faith in Him, and I think that maybe God is trying to get my attention that I would repent of my sin. I would turn to Him and say, Jesus Christ, I need you to come into my heart and save me. I want to live differently. I want to live for your glory and not this selfish life any longer. I just pray, Father, you'll use that message in the life of the unbeliever as well as in the life of the believers, including my own life. In your name we pray. Amen.